If you're new to our church, our, uh, the teaching schedule follows the church calendar every year. So every year during the fall, which is the time leading up to Christmas, we look at an Old Testament book. That's the time before Christ came. Jesus is when, uh, when or, or Christmas is when, is when Christ came. And so we always look at an Old Testament book. We're going to be looking at the uh, prophet Malachi this, this fall. And then from Christmas to Pentecost, we always look at a gospel. We've been looking at the gospel of Matthew these last few years. And then in the summer times, we usually do a topical series and look at a New Testament letter. So we did a, a parenting series in the first half of the summer, and then we're going to now be doing uh, uh, 1 Corinthians, which the last two summers we started. So we did chapters 1 to 4 two summers ago. Last summer we did chapters 5 to 7, and we're picking up right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along right there in the bulletin. And uh, here... God's word to you, his beloved children. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, and we are hungry to be fed uh, by the bread of life through your word. So we pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us open hearts, and we pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit to take your perfect holy word and teach it through an imperfect teacher that you would um, nourish, comfort, build up the faith of your beloved children. And so uh, we open our hearts to you now. We give our minds to you. Give us a focus and um, apply these words to each of our lives, we pray now. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So as I mentioned, uh, we spent the last few years in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you weren't here the last couple summers, or maybe you forgot... (laughs) from two summers ago, what 1 Corinthians is about. Let me just uh, do a brief reminder about the the purpose of the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. And in general, the the pastoral burden of this New Testament letter, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the the church in the ancient city of Corinth, the pastoral burden of the book is church unity. How does God take a group of people like us, where we have all these different backgrounds, most of you did not know each other until you came to this church, and we came from different upbringings, maybe different cultural backgrounds, and God sticks us together, and we're supposed to be a family. So we're unified and tightly knit together, this tightly knit together bound family, even though we're very different people. How do we become unified? And because in uh, Corinth, there were a number of things that were fracturing 
and ripping apart the church in Corinth. So, for example, if you ever read the book of 1 Corinthians, in the first chapter you read about how Paul says there were different people in the church had different teachers that they really liked. So one person says, you know, I really like Paul. Another person says, I really like Peter. Another person says, I like Apollos. And then some people say, you know, I don't follow any of his teachers. I follow Jesus. He's the most, you know, as if the other people don't follow Jesus. And so because of these little tribes with each of the teachers, it was breaking apart, apart the church because they thought their teacher was the best. And so not only have it fracturing in that way, but then also some of the people in the church have some fights over money and they're taking each other to court to sue one another. And they're not finding, you know, an elder in the church or a pastor to help them mediate it. They're just saying, hey, I'm going to sue you. I'm going to take you. And so that's ripping the church apart. And then also when they come to communion, you have the rich are getting drunk on the wine at communion while the poor are waiting on them. And so kind of the socioeconomic divisions in the Corinthian culture now have infiltrated the church. So, you know, there's the rich and the poor that are being fractured in that way. And then marriages are being broken apart. There's divorces that are happening. Some of the men in the church are, you know, visiting prostitutes. And so there's all kinds of things. Jews and Gentiles aren't getting along with each other. So there's all kinds of things that are tearing apart the church. And so in the opening paragraphs of the letter, Paul gives his thesis statement. The main thing he wants to communicate in chapter 1, verse 10, this is what he says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So he says, instead of judging one another, you know, be unified, have one, one judgment. And you say, well, how do you do that? Well, he gives himself as a model. He says, you look at how my life was when I was among you. And in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, this is the way to be a unified family. He says, for I decided, or I judged, is literally what it says, I, I judged to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The way that a church becomes unified as a family is that we keep the cross central. It is the cross of Jesus Christ that has the power to take all kinds of different people and bring them together into a unified family of love for one another. And so that's what the book of 1 Corinthians is about. So now when we come to chapter 8, where we are now, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, another issue comes up that is having the tendency to divide the church. It might be an issue that surprises you because it's the, the thing that's dividing the church in 1 Corinthians 8 is knowledge. And this is not like false knowledge. It's not like there's a false teacher in the church. This is true knowledge, true doctrine, true things about God and about the Bible and about Jesus that is not clothed in love. And what Paul says here is interesting, that true knowledge can actually divide a church. Truth can divide a, a church if it's not clothed in love. And, uh, you know, for some of you, that might not be surprising to you. You know, if you know people who are kind of know-it-alls, who always have an answer for everything. They love getting in debates. They, do not listen, they don't listen to others. Because of all the books they read, you can't uh, really have a conversation with them. And you say, well, I, okay, I know people like that, where they're filled with truth, and actually they're far more divisive than unifying. And uh, this is a particular problem in our tradition. We're a Presbyterian church, and the Presbyterians are especially good. You know, different denominations tend to be good at different things. Some are better at evangelism. You know, some might be better at caring for the poor. Presbyterians are very good at theology, reading books, knowing a lot of, of stuff. And actually, our denomination, the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, is really a pretty small denomination if you look globally. 
And yet some of the most brilliant Christians in the world are in our denomination. But Reformed Presbyterian types are notorious for being schismatic. I, I, someone told me a few years ago that there are 45 Presbyterian Reformed denominations in North America. 45 denominations. That means there have been enough conflicts to split denominations 45 times to make you know, that many. And so what that means is that all this knowledge also has a tendency to divide the church. As I raise the question of how do we be a church that we love knowledge, we, we love learning, we love books, and yet we use that knowledge in a way that doesn't rip us apart. And so there's some helpful answers to that question in this little passage from the Apostle Paul. And so there's three answers that I want to particularly look at this morning. This is what they are. We must understand that knowledge is, first of all, for insight. We have to understand that that's the purpose of knowledge, is, is, is under, uh, uh, looking, uh, seeing into things the core of, the essence of what something really is. So knowledge is first about insight. Second, knowledge is for building up the church. And third, knowledge is for relationship. As we understand these two things, I think this will help us as a church to really in, uh, appreciate the knowledge that God has given to our tradition and yet also be a community that's held together with love. Okay, so three things. So the first is this. Knowledge is for insight. And uh, by insight I mean the knowledge is about seeing the truth of things underneath how they appear on the surface. So things appear a certain way on the surface and true knowledge kind of gets to the core of what they're really about. And I'll explain what I mean by that. And there's two important ways that Paul says we have to have this kind of insight. We have to have insight about the culture around us But then we also have to have insight about ourselves. These are both really important. So let me explain them. First of all, we have to have insight into our culture. And you notice in this passage begins in verse 1. It says, now concerning food offered to idols. Now why is Paul talking about food that's offered to idols? Well, um, what we know about ancient Corinth was that there were numerous temples and statues to all kinds of gods, you know, to, to Aphrodite and to Zeus and to Hermes and to uh, Apollos and to Dionysius and to Artemis. And so all over the city, in the core of the city, there were these temples, these pagan temples, where um, annually they would have multiple feasts at these temples where they have these huge sacrifices, where they bring in these animals. Many, many, uh, many animals were sacrificed. And on the uh, narrow streets on the side of these temples, there would be these marketplaces so that when there was a great feast, the priests would eat the animals that were being sacrificed. And then uh, there would be this le- these leftover animals that would be brought into the marketplace. And all of a sudden, in the marketplace, there, was, there would be this oversupply of meat that in the ancient world was very expensive. Not a lot of people got to eat meat. And so the price went down, and all kinds of people, including Christians, would come into the marketplace to eat this meat. And or, or the Christians, we know from 1 Corinthians, you know, they'd go over their non-Christian friend's you know, house for dinner, and they'd serve up some of the meat that was offered to these idols. But in Acts 15, there was a council that the church had had uh, that said that all Christians should not eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. And so the Christians in Corinth say, well, you know, we don't know whether, you know, you go into the marketplace, you buy some meat. I don't know whether it was sacrificed or idol. It's just some meat that I can eat. And so Paul, uh, so they, want to, they know, should we eat the meat? And so part of Paul's answer comes in verse 4. Look at what he says. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. 
and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom are all things, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now what you you see what Paul says there is this knowledge, there's this knowledge that a Christian is supposed to have about who God is, about the reality of what an idol is, about the food that's offered to idols, and all of this knowledge gives an insight to, you know, these idols, they're not really gods. And so what Paul is saying, you know, if you've read back in Isaiah, Isaiah has these great chapters where he says, you know, the pagan gods that are worshipped is some guy, like, chopped down a tree, and he makes a statue out of the wood, and they start worshipping the wood. And he's like, listen, this is not a god. You made it with your own hands. You know, God is the one true God. He's invisible. He's all-powerful, and he made heaven and earth. But his statue is not a god, and we know that. And so if you eat meat that was sacrificed to the statue, it's not like the meat is possessed or something like that. But if you go over to your friend's house and they say, hey, we're having a feast to this God. This is food that was sacrificed to this God. And now all of a sudden you're participating in the feast. Then as a Christian, you have to distance yourself. You say, listen, I don't worship idols. I worship the one true God. And so there's a whole discernment process where we have to have knowledge about God, about theology, about creation, about unbelief, and about false gods, about about the philosophies of the world. There's all kinds of knowledge that we have to have as Christians in order to step out into the world because it's a complicated thing to know as Christians, where do I identify with the culture around me? Right? I can go eat with non-Christians. I can work with non-Christians. I can be friends with non-Christians. I'm, I'm mixed into the culture around me. And yet there's times where I need to separate from my cult, the culture around me because, because as a Christian, I don't worship false gods. And it is this knowledge that gives us insight into what's the dynamics of what's happening in our culture. And this is an important part of being a Christian. And this is what knowledge is for. Now, the thing about seeing through our culture... Seeing through the false gods, right? You see how we see through it? You, everyone thinks they're worshiping a god in the statue, but we see through it and we say there's no real existence to that god. We live in a culture that highly prizes seeing through things. Some of you might know that. You know, a very suspicious culture, right? So a culture that might look at something like the church and we say, you know, I know on the surface the church says we're all about God and teaching people to love one another, but I know what the church is really about. It's about getting control of people and getting control of their minds. I can see through what you are on the surface. Or, you know, if someone's a religious person, they do good deeds to love their neighbor or something, they say, oh, I know you think you're good doing these good deeds to love your neighbor, but I know what your real intentions are. You want to feel better than other people because you do all these good deeds. I know what your real motivations are. And we're seeing through everything and everyone. And I put a quote from you, from C.S. Lewis on page three of your bulletin, in his book on, called The Abolition of Man, it's a book on education, where he talks about what happens if you're constantly seeing through everyone, constantly questioning the motivations or what things are, are on the surface. This is what he says. C.S. Lewis says, You can't go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it, to see through all things is the same as not to see. To see through all things is the same as not to see. If you don't trust anything on the surface, if there's nothing that you trust in, you have a superior knowledge to everyone and everyone's motivations, C.S. Lewis says you will be blind. 
And of course, that's true in relationships, right? If you are distrustful of everyone in your life and they think, you think they have motivations to hurt you, you will be alone. It, will, it won't lead you into people's lives. It will lead you further away from them. And so um, the big problem in our culture is that we have a suspicion about everyone and everything, but we don't have a suspicion about ourselves. We have insight about institutions like the church. We have insights about politics. We have insights about media. We have insights about education. We have insights about people. We don't have insight about ourselves. And that's the second part, that we need insight both about our culture, but we also need insight about ourselves. And look at the important insight that Paul says we have to have about ourselves. Verse 2. Look at verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Paul says the most important insight you have to have before knowing God is you have to know that there's tremendous limits to my knowledge. I don't know much about you. I don't know your story. For me to make judgments about you as a person, I know nothing about where you come from and why you believe the things until you tell me. And I can't make judgments about churches that I know nothing about or institutions that I know nothing about or businesses that I know nothing about unless I... And so my knowledge is limited. I am not God. And all of us have to know that deeply about ourselves, that not only is our knowledge limited, but also that sin has affected our knowledge. So even my reasoning skills are affected by, you know, I make false reasons. I come to false conclusions because sin has affected me. And, you know, I'll tell you, uh, several years ago, I was um, thinking about doing a Ph.D., you know, while being a pastor here. And I, actually, I shared that with my wife. She said, you're, you're going to do a Ph.D. while you're pastoring the church and have five kids you are living in a different world than reality. And she was right. It was not a good idea. But during that time when I was thinking about doing a PhD, I talked to a number of uh, people who had done PhDs. And uh, there's a pastor down in Tacoma. He's an older uh, pastor who had done a PhD. And, and he said that one of the most valuable things of doing a PhD is that when you're doing a PhD, you go into a very narrow piece of knowledge and you go very deeply into it. And you realize all the complexity and all the nuances about it. And once you realize that this one little bit of knowledge has this much depth to it, you realize that all knowledge has that much depth to it. And you realize how little you know about everything. And so you're going to be very slow to speak with authority about all kinds of things that you're not going to have knowledge about because it humbles you. And so having a humility about our knowledge is what keeps knowledge from turning into the arrogance that divides a church. And so being a church that's about knowledge, it has to be complemented with this humility, an insight not just about our culture, but our insight about ourselves, about how little we really know. Okay? And so when knowledge is no longer used to make me better than others or to win arguments, we can now ask the question, what is knowledge really, should it be used for? And this leads to our second point, is that knowledge is for building up the church. That's what knowledge is used for. God intends our knowledge to be used to strengthen and to encourage people in their faith and their life with God. It's supposed to build others up. It's not for us to, to show that we're better than others. It's supposed to encourage others. And you see that in the second part of, of uh, verse 1 there, where Paul says this knowledge puffs up, right? Knowledge has a tendency by itself to make you arrogant, but love builds up. When knowledge is clothed with love, it builds other people up. And so what does it mean for knowledge to build other people up? How does that work? 
Well, there's a later chapter in 1 Corinthians. We're going to get to this probably in a couple of years. I don't know. Chapter 14, where Paul has an interesting discussion about, in the early church, the practice of prophecy and speaking in tongues in the church. So that when they would come together for worship services like this in the ancient church, they would have someone that would get up to speak a, a word of prophecy because in the early church they didn't have a New Testament. You know, like I just open up the Word of God and I teach the Word of God, but they didn't have a New Testament. And so in order to learn about the gospel and who Christ was, they needed to have someone who had you know, a, a divine word from the Lord to explain in plain language who Jesus was. But there was also the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, which we're going to talk about today, whatever that was which people, no one else really understood. It wasn't a plain language. The people who were sitting there didn't even know what the person was talking about. And so Paul says, in, in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up. You know, when you speak in tongues, you have this kind of amazing spiritual experience of who God is, but no one else gets to share in it. But the one who prophesies, the one who speaks a clear word of teaching builds up the church. And so tongues might be an amazing experience for me, but teaching is a blessing to others. And you know, there's an interesting application he makes to that later in that chapter. He says, you know, if a non-Christian comes into the church and everyone's speaking in tongues, and they're going to come in and be like, what are they all saying? They're talking nonsense. I don't even know what they're talking about. I, this must not be for me, and they're going to leave. But if you speak a clear word that's understandable, he says that the secrets of their hearts will be revealed and they'll fall down and say, God is really among you, just by speaking a plain language. And so what that says for us about knowledge is that a part of no the part of knowledge that builds up is speaking in a way that people can understand. You know, some of us have a tendency to use big theological words and we'll be talking to someone, and they actually have no idea what we're talking about. Because, you know, in the Christian world, we have this whole language that no one else in the world uses. That We're the only ones who know what those words even mean. And we just talk about them like everyone knows what we're talking about. But that's not speaking in plain language. It's basically like speaking in tongues to people outside. Right? And they come in, and they're like, I don't know what they're talking about. This must not be for me. And they leave. And so, when we translate rich theology, and the mysteries of Christ into practical everyday language, it's a very great blessing to people. And I would say, you know, just to quote C.S. Lewis again, C.S. Lewis uh, gave a lecture in the late 40s to a group of pastors in England, and this is precisely what he was talking about, and this is what he says in that lecture. He says, I've come to the conviction that if you cannot translate your thoughts into uneducated language, then your thoughts were confused. Power to translate is the test of having really understood one's own meaning. So an essential part of really having true knowledge means that you can explain it to anyone. You can explain it to a six-year-old. And that's not hard. You don't have to use big words. That means you've really internalized it. You get it in your heart. Now, it can be common among Christian churches to say, you know, all this knowledge, theology, doctrines, teaching, because it tends to divide churches, you know, the 45 denominations that we talked about, why do we even get into all that theology and all that knowledge? Why don't we just do the plain message, we're just about Jesus, we just talk about Jesus, why don't we just leave it there and not get into all the things that divide us? 
Well, one of the reasons for that is the problems is because when you read the New Testament, the Bible says that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So even if you're a church and you say, you know, we're just going to be about Jesus, that's going to result in volumes and volumes of theology and endless debates and conversations and doctrines because he is so rich. There's endless knowledge just in Jesus. And so just being about Jesus is not going to limit the knowledge, but instead we should say that it's a great blessing for Christians to simply be taught for someone to lovingly, conversationally, you know, have dialogue. I'm not just going to lecture people. I want to get into a dialogue. I want to see what you think. And, and I know I don't know everything. And to plainly come alongside people and teach them. And I know, you know, for me, I became a Christian when I was a, a teenager. And I had never gone to church. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I was trying to read it. I was trying to understand it. And anyone that would just talk to me and teach me and explain it to me, it was just such a blessing. It was so thrilling. And I know that's true for some of you. You know, when you came to faith or you've come to faith and you just say, I just love learning. It's so interesting. If someone will just engage with me in a way I understand, they don't just leave me in the dust with, you know, all these high, these big words that I don't understand. This is what it means to clothe our knowledge with love. Clothing our knowledge with love. And so now for some of you who are very into knowledge, reading books, why do you want that knowledge? It's because you feel right. You feel a sense of security that I know everything. I got an answer for any question. I'm smarter than the next guy. I'm smarter than the non-Christian. I'm smarter than the other church. Or do I want knowledge because I want to bless people. I want to build up the church. I want to love others. I want to encourage others in their faith. You can't say, I'm more of a knowledge person than a people person. If you're, more, if you're more of a knowledge person than a people person, you don't have knowledge. That's what the Bible says. You can't be. Because the purpose of knowledge is to love others. And so this leads to the third thing that we need from this passage. Not only that knowledge is about insight. It's about insight not just into our culture, but also insight into ourselves and the limits of our, of our knowledge. The second, knowledge is about building up the church. It's about encouraging and bringing together and building up people in their faith. And it's about dialogue. But the third thing is that knowledge is for relationship. And, you know, in this passage, the two main words that show up in this passage are knowledge and love. And, you know, oftentimes we don't put knowledge and love together that much. You know, oftentimes we think of knowledge, you think of, like, data and facts and information that does not sound relational. It doesn't, you know, stir up your emotions. That, you know, that knowledge is like that. Um, but one of the main ways that the Bible talks about knowledge is in the context of relationships. So actually, if you go to the beginning of the, uh, the uh, book of Genesis, there's a great line where it says that Adam knew Eve. Does that mean that Adam knew information about Eve, you know, that she existed? No, it means that Adam went into the tent with Eve and he knew her, you know, intimately knew her, okay? It, it was about a relational bond was being formed, a relational intimacy. That's what knowledge is about. And I know that for me, the temptation is for knowledge is to be something that is not relational. You know, I love books. Books often take me away from people, isolate me from people, make me alone. And I love to know more because it gives me a sense of, of I feel respectable. I feel confident when I know all the answers. And, I, you know, I, I feel uh, uh, secure in my knowledge. But it's fascinating how Paul challenges our desire for knowledge in verse 3. Look at what he says in verse 3. But if anyone loves God, 
Notice he doesn't say, if anyone has knowledge about God. He said, if anyone loves God. He is known by God. He says, it's more important, what's more important than having all kinds of knowledge is for God to know you. For God to know you in Christ, to know all your weakness, all your fears, your vulnerabilities, that you're easily wounded, that you've been wounded in your life, to know your story, to know your envy, to know your bitterness, to know that you hold grudges against people, that you judge and tear other people down. God knows all these things that are shameful about us. And yet, for God to know us doesn't mean that he just knows this information. It means that he has bound himself to us in love. He intimately knows and loves and holds on to us as his own. In the same way that the Father knows the Son. That's just not knowledge about the Son. It's intimate love that the Father has with the Son. That's what it means for God to know us. And so when we ask the question, how can we as a church not have knowledge rip us apart? This is the central knowledge. That God knows me. And that God loves me. And he's bound himself to me, so I'm going to bound myself to you. And so we're going to have our imaginations and our knowledge just filled with wonders about who Christ is. We're going to have new ideas and we're going to have Bible studies where we talk for hours and hours on end about the scriptures and we're going to debate, you know, does that verse mean this or does it mean this? We're going to get all into that. But every new discovery we have is going to humble us even more and that the great knowledge is that God has known me and loved me. And so this is the thing, is that knowledge by itself makes us proud but the knowledge of Christ humbles us and draws us near to one another. And that's why in all of our thinking, all of our insight, all of our building one another up, Christ must be the central piece of our knowledge as a church. Let's pray together.